the Growth Happens Dawn to Dusk podcast with Matt Devitt. He talks with people about their journey, where they succeeded and failed to help others on their quest. We're all on a journey that starts and ends every day. This is when we grow between dawn and dusk. And now your host, Matt Devitt. Hi, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Growth Happens Dawn to Dusk podcast. Hope you're having a great day. Got a fantastic episode this week with Laura McEnany, good friend of mine. And before we get started with that, just want to invite everybody to take a minute, like, share, leave a comment, five-star review. All of it really helps the podcast and get the word out there. So I would definitely appreciate that. And all of the help and feedback has been just awesome. So thank you for sending that my way. Now back to Laura. Laura is a fantastic person. I've had the opportunity to not only work for her, but work with her on many projects. She's currently a plant manager and all around just an amazing person that I'm really, really happy I've had the opportunity to mentor with and learn from. So I hope you get as much out of this conversation as I've had the opportunity to learn from her over the years. Now, on to the show. So Laura, thanks for the, coming on to the show. Really appreciate you taking out the time to talk with me about some of your interesting journeys within the realm of uh, heavy industry, if we call it just the big over-encompassing you know, industry, though you've touched on a, a lot of interesting positions, places you've worked at, places you've lived, so on and so forth. So really appreciate you taking the time to, uh, to talk to me about your journey. I'm happy to be here. <laughs> awesome. So just for everybody out there, uh, Laura and I have worked together in a couple of different places, uh, different uh, positions within the company, so on and so forth. So I've really had a had a lot of fun of um, working with her in teams, working for her on teams and so on and so forth. So uh, some of this will be a little bit of us uh, reminiscing about back in the day conversations when we worked on stuff, but uh, that'll make it interesting anyway. So, so I think one of the interesting things to kind of maybe uh, kickstart the conversation a little bit is, you know, you've spent a lot of time in heavy industry, but this, this really wasn't an industry that you kind of fell into. I mean, this is an industry that you grew up in, you know, just from, uh, just from your dad and his experience in it. Absolutely. It's, uh, it's kind of weird. So I'm a fourth generation mining person, um, which is a little odd. I know that, but when I look back on, kind of how I got into it. It's, it's a strange story. So, you know, grandpa's, uh, uncle's dad, you know, all the men in the family worked in the mining industry going back. And my dad started off as an underground laborer and then kind of said, you know, this is probably not the best career choice and ended up going to school at night, getting an accounting degree and, you know, got a, a good job, so to speak. And so when I was a kid, I can remember, um, you know, with month end or something happened to be on a weekend dad would take one of us to work with him. And I loved it. I so loved it. I have these great memories of being, you know, six, seven, eight years old, sitting in control rooms and just being absolutely fascinated by the equipment and, you know, the noises and the smells and, and all that sort of stuff. So it was just kind of fun. Um, you know, and so I always, uh, I always just knew that that was the place for me. It was great. So, and when yes. I, uh, when I got a job, or when I got, you know, to school age, I'm like, oh, I don't want to go in the mining industry. I'm going to get a job in chemical engineering so I don't have to go into mining. And then while I was in school, the whole industry changed and all of a sudden I needed chemical engineers. <laughs> so there you go. <laughs> Back into it. 
Yeah, that's that's it's interesting the way you bring it up that way. So my my upbringing was uh, so my my parents got married pretty young. I think yours did as well. And um, oh yeah, seventeen. You know, so, yeah, so so my parents. I mean, I think it was like you know it was uh, seventeen and nineteen and something like no, it wasn't that young. Where was it? Nineteen twenty one. And then I was born when my dad was twenty. Um, cause this year it's kind of fun. So we're going to celebrate his 60th. I celebrate my 40th and, um, it actually fell on before my grandmother passed. It would have been her 80th. So we were all, it just, we all happened to be 20 years apart from each other. Um, but what I remember is when he was going through, um, he was enlisted and then they gave him the option to go back to college about that time. I was, let's say, I think I was like five, five or six or something like that. And it was the same deal. If there were classes he was going to, or if, you know, he was taking a class where extra credit for, you know, those social science classes where you come in and, you know, extra credit or like they were doing like a movie or something at night on geology or something like that, which is interesting because my dad went into computer science. But um, I remember going to classes with him and stuff like that. And I think that's where I kind of got like my nerdy kind of feel for things or, or engineering just being around it at a young age it was just it was amazing how it just kind of opened up my world like um, like this is all possible like these are things we can do if you know how to do it so it's a uh, it's really cool when you you kind of get a taste for something at a young age and then it comes all the way back around and you're like oh yeah I guess I was interested in this all the time yeah, and it's strange to me when I look at it because I don't remember a time where I wasn't interested in it, right? I mean, just it's – and I always laugh about it. It's the machinery. It's the heavy machinery. It's just absolutely fascinating to me. And, you know, <laughs> people look at me and like, how on earth did you decide to do that? It's like, well, I never really decided. It was just there, and that's what I'm going to do. Well, it's weird, but I love it. Absolutely love it. Never really – I'll never get away from it. I know that. So. Yeah, I think you and I have both uh, kicked around different uh, different avenues and stuff, and we always end up back into the uh, well, as I affectionately call it, and others have too, like just the rock dust industries, things of that yep. nature, all having to do with you know, just you know, like I said, I call it heavy industry because that kind of works when people think about the equipment. But uh, for uh, many of us that have been in for a while, it's just it's all it's all rock dust. It's all rocks. It's all dust. We're doing something with it. Exactly. And, you know, I always called it the mining industry, but I've never worked in a mine. I always have worked in the processing plants. And, you know, and it's something, too, when you try and explain to people, no, I'm not out there, you know, with a, you know, with a jackhammer or pickaxe or something in a mine, you know, the old fashioned uh, views of what that is. But, yeah, the processing end of it and the heavy industry part of it is just, uh, it's kind of mind boggling the amount of things that are actually encompassed within that various forms of the industry. But, so yeah, I was talking with somebody, yeah, well, and I was talking to somebody about the whole um, elevator pitch because I asked him, you know, what do you do? And it, and it came out really smoothly. And I said, okay, so you've been asked this a few times. And he says, well, yeah, it's a lot easier than telling them. And, uh, and we had a good conversation about what his job actually was when he was doing there. And uh, it seems like you, ha you have the same issue where people basically do the whole, you know, cocktail party. So what is it you do? Um, have you ever been able to distill that down to a decent, you know, like couple sentence, like elevator pitch? No, I have tried so many <laughs> different times on that one. And, you know, and it's kind of funny. So starting off in the gold mining industry and trying to explain, oh, I work in a pyro uh, metallurgical plant and nobody knows what that means. Or, 
you know, okay, I work in the gold industry. Oh, so you're a miner. Well, yes, but no. And, you know, as I've gone on and now, you know, working in, in the cement industry, and it's like, no, I don't make your sidewalk. I make the stuff that goes in your sidewalk. And, you know, I, I just, I find myself um, never really having gotten to that point because I always have to explain too much. And, uh, you know, the cement one is, is absolutely funny to me because I'm, I've become such a, no, it's not a cement sidewalk. No, you're not pouring cement. <laughs> it's concrete. Mm -hmm. And no, I don't do that. Um, but again, I mean, when people think about that, they think of, you know, the, the trucks that they see out on the road and, you know, the ready-mix trucks, that sort of stuff. Yeah, I don't have a clue how to do that. <laughs> yeah, I've always tried to, uh, like, bottle it down to the couple of buzzwords. So, so uh -huh. you, I mean, so you know that I work in, you know, dust filtration and, and particulate matter capture and all that kind of stuff. And it's the same thing. Like, as soon as I go into that with somebody, you can watch that glazed eye effect start to set into place. Oh yeah. And uh, I so I just, yeah, so I, I said, I actually worked on this a little bit with one of the people in, um, so our, our marketing manager who does all, a lot of our brochures and stuff like that. I'm like, help me get an answer for my job. And we kind of kicked it around. She's like, well, why don't you just tell people you work with heavy industry to clean up the air in the communities people work in? And I'm like, ding, 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 ding. <laughs> I'm like, that just might work. So. I've used it a couple of times on planes and it's one of those that like it gives people enough of an answer that they're okay with it. But those that really want to know, will dig into it. And, and so uh -huh. I've only come about from that because I work with somebody far more creative than myself to come up with an answer. <laughs> I'll have to find somebody. Let me know who that person is and they can help yeah. me distill mine down. But... Yeah, yeah, yeah. I should definitely, uh, I should let Bree know. She might have a, uh, a second, uh, a side hustle going on, just helping us nerdy people figure out how to explain to others what we do. <laughs> I need it. So you've worked in gold, um, cement. Um, so you and I have crossed paths in cement. You've cro we know we crossed paths in, in calcined lime. Um, but it's always been in the processing side. So, and, and that makes sense. I mean, when I worked in cement, I mean, yes, I worked where there was a quarry on site, but I had nothing to do with the quarrying and mining operation. I mean, my job was to optimize the pyro process, kilns, and, you know, basically everything that uh, was used for the conversion of the material that went through it. So kind of if you, if you step back and, and squint at all of those items that go through there, do you, do you still find it interesting that those industries still kind of get the, the uh, I guess, the image of the fact that they're very old and non-sophisticated? They do, right? And I think it's because when you look at it, like, let's think back, I don't know, maybe 50 years, right? The major parts of the equipment that go into those industries are the same. Right. You know, there hasn't been a revolution in how you grind something. Right. It's ball mill and it may have gone to a vertical mill, but, you know, the major pieces of equipment are roughly the same. It's and so you, you look at it and you can look at old pictures and go, oh, yeah, it looks kind of a lot like that still. And I think, you know, looking from an outside point of view, a lot of people may have seen a picture or may have seen a cartoon when they were a kid or, you know, maybe even that show how it's made something along mm -hmm. those lines. But yeah, it, the image is always the same. And when you actually get down and deep into it, it's like, wow, it's not like that at all. You know, here's all these technological things going on. And I wish I could explain it to you. But 
like you said, you know, eyes glaze over once you start going into it. So, you know, it, it, it's not something I think that a lot of people really understand. People know it's there, but they don't necessarily know everything in their lives may, that may have been touched by heavy industry. You know? Yeah, completely so, agreed. So, mm -hmm. You know, I mean, you look at cement like for right now. You know, anything that you're going to build has some sort of aspect of it in it, you know, from, from your roads to the sidewalks to the foundations of the house to, you know, um, central pillars and, and you know, high-rise construction along with the steel. And, and you don't like to think about it sometimes because it's just not something that most people spend a lot of time on. Yeah, and you know, not to make this seem like a, a cement and concrete infomercial, though. I mean, both of us have wrapped a good amount of our lives working in those industries. But you know, recently with the the uh, hurricane that went through the south, and they showed the coast, and like all of these homes were decimated except for like the one that was slip form concrete that they built the whole structure out of, and it's still there. And so I, I. It's kind of interesting. I, I I brought this up to somebody at the the Portland Cement Association. I'm like, why are you guys not using that as like your biggest marketing piece of the year? Like, why why are well, you not doing that? Well, look at to Rome. I mean, how much of the Roman stuff is still standing with you know stone and the mortars and that sort of thing in it? I mean, it's all basically the same idea. Yeah, and if you talk to the 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 phd guys that are trying to figure out exactly how it was made they're still not exactly sure how the romans had the quality of product that they had yeah it's it's mind-boggling it really is wow. so yeah it's it's i mean i kind of um i i completely agree with the way you see that what i would be interested in is so that we we know most of the unit equipment is the same but what are some of the biggest changes that you've seen within the industry that kind of surprised you as you as you spent time like either you know, surprised you while you were in it, or are you kind of looking into the future as like, wow, that'll be a big surprise if it actually takes off. I guess, you know, current as well as, you know, what's your magic eight ball say about the future? For me, it's been kind of looking at probably the instrumentation and how the unit ops are connected. Because back, you know, when I was hanging out with my dad in control rooms, I can remember, you know, big dials and paper charts with you know pens that would go oh you know here's all these funny looking squiggly lines and um a lot of what the the good control room operators did was based on sight and smell right mm -hmm. oh you go out and look at something and i can remember i don't even remember what the piece of equipment was but it was it was a motor of some sort and they called it the spit and sizzle test and so if you spit on it and it sizzled, it was too hot. And so you had to do something about it. And now, yep. you know, with the with the level of instrumentation, I mean, you can know every temperature, every pressure, every millimeter that something moves. And with the high level controls associated with that, and you get some of these automated programs now that are intuitive enough to figure out when a process starts to change and to head it off so that you can have a continuous steady state condition. And I don't think that was something that, that occurred to a lot of people back then. And I mean, that wasn't, that wasn't even that long ago. And so now when I start to think of what change is going to be there in 20 or 30 years, you know, are we going to lose that skill set of the control room operator? Because to mm -hmm. me, those in the plant, you know, actually operating stuff, that is the absolute key to everything, right? I mean, that person that's running things um, has so much intimate knowledge. 
and instrumentation and all that is absolutely phenomenal, but how do we adapt that with the human interface? And and that to me is, is one of those key things because it surprised me at how quickly some of this has come on and, you know, how is the industry going to keep up and, and keep the strong human element in it moving forward? You know, the person to call BS sometimes when, uh, you know, the program goes bad. Because it does. Yeah, that's, you know? that's completely true. Yeah, I mean, it'll become a point to where, I mean, it sounds like to me, and I've, and I've been in the control rooms, but I mean, you, there's a lot of information coming into it. And it's great when you've got those, those you know, P&ID loops or, you know, any kind of auto controls in place that are running the system, but you still got to have a conductor for the orchestra. It's oh, kind yeah. of the way I remember a, a, a really senior control room operator telling it to me. He's like, yeah, but this mm -hmm. is just, it's a system of systems. And my job is to make sure that, you know, everything kind of stays out of the ditches. And, and see how they auto correct as it goes through. Um, yeah, you're right. I mean, more than likely, I mean, you know, they're going to try to replace the conductor, but how do you, you know, keep that interface, even if it isn't at the control room, but just in general, the interface between general. people and the process that's going on. Yeah, I'm curious. And, and that's something I'm kind of looking forward to seeing how we, you know, how we move through that transition. You know, and, and you see yeah. it sometimes in the in the mines themselves. I mean, how many of the uh, the large trucks now are you know, starting to look at the driverless trucks? Right. You know, how's that going to impact everything? So. Right. I'm curious. I'm real curious. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a it's a brave new world out there. <laughs> so, taking a look at the, uh, like, a, I haven't found a good way in these podcasts to shift gears without basically like shoving the clutch in, throwing a gear and then dropping the clutch again. But um, so talking about the mine, uh, gold mining and up through then projects. Are there any projects that you worked on, you know, earlier in your career that you really, you know, may, may not even been the technology, even though we've been talking a lot about that, but um, a project or, or something that took place early on in your career that you've seen as being extremely valuable you know maybe it even fell into the category of a beautiful disaster at the time but given time literally to to look back on the event it was actually extremely valuable to you oh for me it's commissionings um when i finished <laughs> school yeah my i finished school i have my first real job out in the world in a gold mine and it was a plant that was a processing system that was the first of its kind in the world Right. So, you know, you had all these engineers way smarter than me that designed it, it got built. And with my grand, you know, undergraduate degree, I said, great, go work on that. And I was on the commissioning team. And I had no idea what I was doing. <laughs> Absolutely no idea whatsoever. And it was fun because, you know, every day was something new and every day was troubleshooting on the fly. Okay, we're going to start this motor for the first time, and then we're going to put, you know, the material in for the first time. I'll be honest, it hardly ever went right the first time, particularly being, you know, the first of its kind in the world, right? And it was great fun. Um, we made mistakes all the time. I'll be honest, I did. I know I did. Um, I can remember, you know, this was a, it was a processing plant that used oxygen. And, you know, you'd have to purge the system and you'd have to, you know, there was this huge 40 minute, I think it was about 40 minutes. Anyway, this long time where things would have to work. 
And I can remember being in the control room at the time doing the commissioning part of this. And I have like all these executives standing behind me as we're going to do something for the first time. And I messed it up and so I didn't purge it correctly or whatever it was. And, you know, nothing broke, but looking at the or in hearing the size of everybody behind me going, now we're going to have to wait another 40 minutes or hour, whatever it was. I'm like, oh, my God, I'm so sorry. Um, you know, little tiny, silly things like that. But then, you know, that was one of those times where I just worked. God, you work, you know, 12, 16 hours a day for three months straight and take a deep breath. And and then all of a sudden, they're like, you know, Laura, you did this once. And so you want to do it again? And I said, sure. Hey, why don't you go, you know, off to Indonesia and do it again? And I said, sounds like fun. And again, you know, commissionings are the best things because you're going to make a ton of mistakes. And you're going to, you know... I don't know. They just appeal to me from that point of view, because I think that's kind of what formed me for the rest of my career and made me a little bit less worried about making mistakes. Because guess what? You're going to. You're going to make a ton of them and then move on. But um, between being comfortable with my mistakes and then just the troubleshooting on the fly, I mean, there's just no substitute for just getting down into it and trying things. And, you know, in yep. three years out of school, I'd done two commissionings. Holy cow, how did that happen? Well, good. Yeah, commissioning is commissioning is amazing. I mean, I've only done it once. And, um, I mean, I'd, I'd like your perspective on it, but, I mean, you did two commissionings with it in your first three, three years. It, it, looking back again, if you were, let's say, in a plant that was already existing and running, how many equivalent years do you think the three years of commissioning is to if you're in a steady state, you know, plant with all of its general, you know, processes going on? Well, I don't think they're necessarily comparable at all. And that's kind of a shame because if you're in a steady state plant, are you getting multiple years of experience or are you getting the same year of experience multiple times? You know, and that's that's one of those things about a steady state plant. I mean, you got to be there, you got to take care of it. There's a lot that goes into it, so I don't want to minimize that at all because that's a tough job. But for me, you know, you one of the fun things in life is trying something new, right? So if you're in a steady state plant and you know you don't have the opportunity for a commissioning, that's when you start getting into the special projects and anything that's outside of the day-to-day -day norm, just to kind of keep your skill set up and and to kind of reach out a little bit and try something. Yeah, that's actually a really good way to put it because I had worked in a plant that was pretty well run when I first got out of college. And I found, my, found myself like after, you know, getting your bearings after that first, you know, nine months to 12 months, um, looking to get on any project team that was doing something in the plant that wasn't, you know, process troubleshooting. Just... Mm -hmm just to see something new. And then when I got the option to uh, commission, um, yeah, it seemed like after going through that process for about a year and a half, that uh, you went into other plants, you know, seeing them in a very different way than when you went into them before commissioning. Yeah, I mean, it, it changes your mindset. It really and truly does. You're never going to look at things the same way because you've had to actually break down into root causes on the fly what's going on or what could have gone wrong. Whereas in a steady state, I mean, you're, you're more in tune to what goes right as opposed to what goes wrong. So after the, the time commissioning, if you were to, 
it's kind of the proverbial, you know, what would you tell your, you know, your younger self, but, you know, if somebody was going into commissioning for the first time, what are some of the things, if any, that you would, you would suggest they take a look at or, or do, you know, just to get the, not only the most for themselves, but also to be the most productive when they were there. You gotta, you gotta work with everybody. Right. And, and that was something that, okay, so granted it's a, it's a commissioning, right. And there's, you've got everybody from the guy on the shovel all the way up through the PhDs that designed the thing. And you need to be able to talk to every single person on the chain as, you know, just as a coworker and you never know where you're going to learn. Right. I mean, the guy on the shovel may not understand all of the engineering that goes behind things, but he sure knows, you know, when a motor goes bad or when something doesn't look right. And there's something to be learned from every single level that that's involved in something like that. You got to be open to it. You know, and that yeah, for me but... has been, it's so important on learning things from everyone that I'm around. Agreed. Yeah. If you're, if you're open to uh, letting everybody be a teacher, it's, it's crazy what you mm -hmm. can pick up. Absolutely oh, crazy. Yeah. yeah. I've learned a lot from, from, all of these jobs and you know you just kind of look back on I have um, I have a memory back from early in my career sitting <laughs> in uh, a crusher building with I can't remember the guy's name but just sitting up there and talking to him and him explaining to me how the crusher worked and you know how everything happened and then something plugged somewhere in the line and we went down and shoveled it out, shoveled it out and him just being completely shocked with the fact that I was going to shovel it out with him because I was an engineer. I'm like, well, I mean, you got to get down and dirty to see what happened and why it happened. And, you know, that was just one of those things that we ended up bonding over that. And it was great. So whenever I needed to know something, you know, I'll go talk to that guy because we kind of broken down the, uh, oh, I'm an hourly. Oh, you're an engineer. So what? <laughs> you know, everybody's got something to bring to the table. Got to be open to that one. Yeah, that's absolutely true. Uh, it's, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, there's really no more to say about that than, you know, if you're just willing and open to learn from anybody. I mean, it's, it's crazy how that, and this isn't even just a, you know, professional career thing, but it's just, it's amazing how much it will, uh, you know, just grow your own perspective and your own personal life on items. It's definitely well worth oh, yeah. it, for sure. I agree. I agree. So did a bunch of commissioning, went through that. And then when did you swatch or when did you bounce out of gold over into cement? Oh, that was in the, God, I'm aging myself. That was in the late 90s. Okay. I, um, and you had a couple of commissionings was, in cement too, didn't you? Yeah, I did. Uh, God, I've just been, I've been lucky on that one. Um, but yeah, I left gold industry when uh, gold started tanking. And so the layoffs were coming right and left and, I had a fantastic boss who's like, oh, hey, Laura, you're not on the next layoff list, but don't know which one you're going to be on. And so mm -hmm. it's great. So that's how I ended up going into cement, and, you know, just uh, finding a job that, that was comparable to the things that I like. Went into a plant that was a steady state plant, which was great because it, it taught me a lot um, about how to run a plant that, you know, is the same day in, day out. And I just, I look at my career and I've been so lucky because while I was there, um, there was a guy that I worked with who's like, hey, do you know what refractory is? I said, I don't really have a clue. And he goes, oh, well, the kiln's going to be down, so we're going to go inside. And I learned about the bricks on the inside, kind of the 
kind of the hard way. Like, you know, here's how everything happened. And, you know, that's kind of where I've, that right there set my career in motion, I think. It took me on this path and I had no idea I would end up on by just learning a little bit about the bricks that go inside some of the kilts. And, you know, you learn from a guy and then you get on a team to start looking at it from a different perspective. Then you get on a corporate team to do something. And then all of a sudden you're in all these different training classes and you realize, hey, I know something that not a whole lot of people know and how cool is that? So you accidentally, you know, at least from my perspective, I accidentally ended up with a level of expertise in something that I never set out to do, but God has it helped me moving through the world. So it's been, it's been fun. So, you know, I, I was able to do that for a while and, um, one of the things I started doing while I was at that steady state plant was um, getting into teaching a little bit. So the company that, that I was working for at the time had all these technical training classes for the new engineers, and I volunteered to start teaching in some of them. And I think that's where I first met you, right? Is in one of those classes? Yeah, I think it was a pyro, pyro one, pyro two, something of that nature. It could have been mill grinding, but yeah, it was. Uh, that was definitely where we first crossed paths. We were in the... Uh, the week-long technical training sessions that were internal for the company. Yeah, and I always found that fun because I, I never set out to be a teacher, right? And no, but now I, I'm looking back on how much fun I had teaching those classes and and being able to kind of break down some of the the industry-specific stuff with new folk, you know. And mm -hmm. I learned it better myself by doing that, and so. You know, I, I never, ever would have thought myself somebody that would end up being a teacher of sorts. And, you know, and later on in life, when I started doing volunteering stuff uh, a little more frequently, it's always in schools and it's always teaching and training and, and setting stuff along those lines, too. So, yeah, I've got, I've got some weird background. I don't know how I ended up doing half the stuff I ended up doing sometimes. I know. That yeah, was, the, I don't even know if I answered your question because I kind of went. No, no, no. It was, it was good. I, I was just wondering if you know. I mean, most I was bringing up just a, you know, different industry moving forward within your timeline. Um, with the with the refractory portion, and this is just me asking in general, but how was it viewed within your your plant? Was it kind of a like a necessary evil? So not many people really went out of their way to learn it. It was that, and then I think like. The guy that, that taught me, that was his passion. I have no idea why. He was a spectacular guy, a guy by the name of Doug. He was wonderful. And it was his passion. And he was, you know, um, a guy that had graduated from high school, started working in the plant, just kind of worked his way up in all of these various things. He and I hit it off. And he's like, hey, come learn this. And, you know, because somebody in the plant had a passion, you know, they everybody else let him fly, right? So it mm -hmm. wasn't that you know, oh, only Doug can do it. But it was, Doug had a passion, Doug loved it. And if anybody wanted to work with Doug, go to town, right? Mm -hmm. And I don't know why not too many people took him up on it, but I did. It was great. So, but he, yeah, and kind uh, of the reason it, I was, no, sorry. He was definitely looked at. Very favorably. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah, and, the, and the, well, not, part of the reason I was, I was asking with refractory is in other plants I've been in is it's, it's almost a necessary evil to where people only looked at it from the maintenance expense side and not the potential for production gain if done right. 
And so uh, that's a side note on refractory, but I think it's one of those items that within general, um, and I kind of fell into this accidentally with like online um, XRF analyzers and things like that, that we had at the first plant that I started working in, where people kind of viewed it as like, well, we just deal with it. But if you were able to get good at that, you kind of built yourself this niche to where Uh you became the go-to for items like that. And I just kind of want to bring that out as like an illustration of if you can find the, the, the items of importance or, um, you know, things that, you know, intrinsically have a lot of value within the company, but they're poo pooed on is just like, well, we just have to do this. It's amazing Uh how few people will fight you when you ask to go do that and get good at it. And then once you get really good at it, that becomes basically, you know, your, your lever to now get into all sorts of other conversations and move around. And, and honestly, that's what I think directed a lot of my career is Doug dragging me into the refractory happily, but then I got to be good at it. And, you know, I, I had an opportunity to transfer to a technical center and kind of focus my gears on the refractory for a while. And it opened the world to me. I mean, it absolutely opened the world to me. Had I just been, you know, your average process engineer that moved up and then went to a regional position, that would have been a fantastic job. But instead, here was this person that got all this refractory experience, and all of a sudden, they're like, hey, can we send you here? Can we send you there? Can you go look and, and you know, solve our problems on this? And my God, I ended up in some weird, great places, um, got to travel to Poland to go look at a refractory um, uh, manufacturer, and, you know, I'm in Turkey and I'm traveling all over Europe and, you know, trying to apply the knowledge of the refractory because it was something that my company really valued. And because it's so expensive and trying to figure out how can we save money, how can we make this more efficient, how can we improve our bottom line, and all of a sudden I was looked on, you know, as a heck of a resource and very, very selfishly. Oh my God, how would I have gone to all of these places had I not accidentally developed um, an expertise in a specialty area, right? And it got my name out there and people knew that was something that I did. And, you know, it, it that was probably looking back, one of those turning points in my career is having developed that refractory knowledge and being happy about it and willing to work on it. And so, you know, kind of when I look at it, looking back on that and when I tell people, I'm like, yeah, develop a specialty area. You know what I mean? Absolutely develop a specialty area and own it. You know, keep going with the rest of your job, but don't be afraid. You don't have to to gear 100% of your life and career on one thing, but definitely develop one thing in particular that you're really good at in addition to, you know, the regular stuff. Yeah, that's a a really, really good point. The you want to find a way to differentiate yourself, but you also don't want to just be that, you know? So even if you went to a plant where the refractory, I'm, I'm going to just make up a story here, but, you know, let's say they had that part under control. You still had to be a competent process engineer, you know? So you could never give up on your base. You just were just, I'm, I'm, I'm good in this area. That's who I am. That's my foundation, but I'm going to find something very specific 
and I'm going to hone that and master it. I think it's a great way to, to look at it is you got to have a foundation, but you should definitely have something that lets you stand apart. Mm -hmm. Oh, I agree. Yeah. So I don't mind standing out from that point of view. <laughs> no, not from the, not from the, <laughs> the, the, the uh, nerdy. I, I know what's going on with your, uh, your ceramics. So yeah. Anybody? Yeah, it's 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 not it's not the best icebreaker, I'm sure, when you walk into a party or like, so who wants to talk? Who wants to talk shot creek? Anybody? 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 No. Does anybody even know what that is? No. Anybody? Great. Although on that Wait. note, I did go to a party once, and I was trying to. This was back when I was doing lots and lots of refractory, and I met this guy. He's like, I know exactly what you're talking about. I work at a facility that makes those. You're the only person I've ever met that knows what it is. And so there's <laughs> two of us and nerds in a room and. Oh, my poor husband's rolling his eyes and walking off in the other direction. <laughs> right. Oh, <this> is cool. <laughs> Every once in a while, that's definitely going to happen. You come across the one person that was just like, well, no, I know exactly what you're talking about. And then, of course, you both do like the sniff test on each other to make sure it's not yeah. bull. And uh, you're like, oh, yeah, this is good. And then everybody else at the party just completely disappears. You just you go off oh, into yeah, your absolutely. own world. Yep. Yep. So. <laughs> You had the, the, the area of expertise that you picked up when you got over to, to cement that definitely helped in the long term. And you also brought up the, the teaching that you got into, and, and this is definitely where we cross paths. But within the teaching, where do you think that, if at all, um, you know, gave you some benefit to, to your either you know, personal or, or professional development? I think for me, when you teach something, you have to know it. And so I thought I knew a lot and then I started teaching and I learned even more in the process. So you gotta be ready for, for tough questions. <laughs> and so I did a heck of a lot more homework and a much more, I guess a deeper dive into the material than I would have otherwise. And that was just personal benefit to me. Um, but I, I, the things that I liked about it, I don't know. I, I just, I think I never, I never envisioned myself as a teacher or a mentor. And which is really bizarre because I've always had great mentors in my life, but I think that's where it ended up kind of giving me a little bit of patience and making me happy to see other people learn stuff. And it's not something, again, that I set out to do, but, and I never anticipated that, but it was so much fun being able to teach people, hey, this is how a clinker cooler works, and, you know, here's how you balance the airflows and blah, 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 and, you know, because you don't learn that stuff in school. Mm -hmm. You learn, the, you know, the general engineering principles and then trying to apply it to all this big equipment and things like that and watching people kind of click. That was so much fun when you could see in somebody's face that they got it. Yeah, you that's know, that's definitely a good point you bring up as far as like teaching them on the job, because I also think um, having seen people come in from out of school directly into the industry how they're completely lost the first month or two they're there and how they realize like this degree I just went and spent four and five years have taught me nothing about running this piece of equipment um you know but at the same time it's all the OJT all the training and this it's it's amazing to watch that eureka moment on their face uh -huh. oh yeah that is so much fun you know yeah because engineering school teaches you how to how to think I guess and but yeah, not a lot about the practical applications of a real world job until you get out in it. Yeah, and, and, and to okay. to yeah, exactly. I mean to the university's defense, I mean, thankfully so. I mean, you know, had they only taught me how to work on distillation columns and things like that, 
when I graduated, the oil market had bottomed out. So I wouldn't have, I, I would have had no skill set to take to the market. So it's just kind of interesting on how you, you know, you leave school, you think you got it and you step on and like a week later, you're like, I don't know anything. Oh my God, um, I'm an idiot. I, oh, I yeah. can remember thinking that I'm never going to be able to do this. I'm in over my head. It's yep. awful. But, yep. Yeah, and then when you get to the swim. point to where you, oh. you know it and then you start to teach it again, it almost feels like it's you're back to that point of like, I don't know any of this. <laughs> so, oh, yeah. <laughs> you brought up um, mentors. Mm-hmm. What are some of the qualities that you, you have seen that make a really good, not mentor itself, but a mentor mentee? relationship where both parties um, really walk away feeling like they got something from the relationship? Oh, God, I look at the ones in my life. You got to be open. You got to be honest with each other, right? You got to be both sides, I think, need to be willing to discuss failure and how you deal with failure. And guess what? It's okay. And, you know, when I look at, at some of the best benefits I got as a mentee, it was that mentor giving me just enough rope, you know what I mean? And then helping yep. me to figure figure out before I did something really stupid. And, um, you know, I look back on the confidence I gained through some of those relationships. And then as I got older and I started having my own mentees, you know, and I'm like, oh, I'm not that old. Oh, God, yeah, I am. Um, you know, being able to share experiences and then, not go down the line of, well, if I were you, I would do X, and in my experience, X. That's not good. But instead, being able to say, yeah, you know, here's some things that I did, and how would you handle that? Learning from your mentees as well, right? I mean, as a mentor, you have to learn from your mentees. I mean, I look at the things I've learned from you, (laughs) you know? Um, You and I think very differently, and that's fantastic, because it's challenged me at various different points. And, you know, I'm, I'm trying to help you through something and you're like, well, what if we look at it this way? And God, Matt, I never thought about it that way. Cool. Okay. Let's try that. And it, it goes both ways. And I think that's something that, that needs to be acknowledged is the mentor mentee relationship is both people learning from each other. One just happens to have a little more experience than the other one. That's it. Yeah. Yeah. Those that's completely true. Relationships. Yeah. Well, and I mean, that's one of the reasons I think you and I keep crossing paths as we go through just because it's a good relationship that we've built up over time. But the the honesty portion that you bring up, I think, is crucial. And that's not even with a mentor mentee, but just being able to honestly talk about a situation where it is without ego in play, you know, because we've all seen that take, especially when things are going right. You know, I mean, you can Mm -hmm. flip it around the other way where things are going right. And now the ego gets in there and. You know, somebody, sometimes you need somebody to throw the wet blanket on you and be like, yeah, everything's going good, but what about this? What about that? You know, we want to keep this going. And so, you know, it's, it's, it's nice to be able to have those people around you to, to have that conversation with. I completely agree. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's been fun. So technical centers, fast forward all the way today, you are plant manager for a yep. cement facility. And how have you kind of seen yourself, if at all, I'm just going to, I'm going to make an assumption. You can, uh, maybe I'll fulfill the meaning of assume. Um, But uh, moving into this role, have you seen 
a huge or large transition out of more of that technical, which is really what we've talked about up until now, you know, process engineering, commissioning, and so on and so forth. You know, now you're overseeing a whole plant. So you've got P&L responsibilities, you've got people, you've got process. Um, how have you seen yourself kind of shift where you were as that commissioning person to where you are now as a plant manager as far as priorities? God, or even just been, skill sets, like how you are, even like how you see it, I guess. Yeah, it, it's been it's been a weird transition too, and and I've liked it. So I think through the course of my career, you know, and having gotten um, gotten different experiences and doing different things that have been great, I love engineering. I absolutely adore process engineering, but I also realized where my true value was, and I was good at it, but I wasn't great at it. And there's a difference, and it's okay to realize what some of your limitations are. Um, you know, and when I was in my 20s, it was all about how fast can I climb the corporate ladder? What new project can I learn? What new and exciting thing can I do? And those were all wonderful. I don't regret a single bit of that. It's part of what made me who I am. And then when I hit my 30s, um, I kind of changed a little bit. And it was a shocking thing on... Um, I want to do something different. I want to have a family. And so I had a kid and I took a year off and uh, stayed home with my son. I don't think that impacted my career at all, but from a personal point of view, I grew so much and I started to think more about relationships and, you know, nurturing and stuff like that. And I know it sounds hokey, but for me, it was absolutely true that it was kind of a fundamental change in thinking for me. And at that point, I started, when I went back to work, trying to focus more on helping people instead of just, you know, thinking about the job and the projects. And because of that, I started to naturally transition more into managerial roles. And as I've kind of come up from there, I have so much fun now on helping other people and watching people grow. And, you know, for me, my goal in life is to be the dumbest one in the room. And for me, what that really means is having an expert in every department around me that knows more than I do about whatever it is that they do. And now I've kind of, you know, kind of circling back to our earlier conversations is now I'm the conductor of a whole plant. I'm not just the conductor of what's going on in the control room. And being able to try and, and bring a lot of that stuff together, it's, uh, it's much more fulfilling for me now, you know. I like to do that sort of thing and, and challenge people and change people's thinking and, you know, getting that fresh engineer out of school now and watching their careers develop and grow and seeing how I can kind of mold them a little bit. I get so much satisfaction from that. I really do. Yeah, it's, and Sometimes it's... I wonder how the hell I ended up here, but <laughs> I <sure> like it. <laughs> no, that's, that's, that's fantastic. I mean, the fact of, uh, um, and I guess one of the things, and, and may, I don't even one of the things, but, you know, within your role, do you see at the level where now you're at, you know, either let's say GM level management for a region or plant level management, is the technical background that you have as crucial or, and I guess what I'm getting at is, is that, or does the understanding personal interactions and getting the team to work at a high level, almost trump the the process experience. I mean, I know you. It's weird. Like you needed the process experience to move through 
the system for lack of a better word uh -huh. to then get your shot at the upper level management. But then when you're up at the upper level management, do you ever look at it and be like, well, if I wasn't as good, or if I had no process experience, you know, could you still be effective at that job, even just from being able to really get the most out of your teams in an effective manner, be, basically being a world-class manager of people? I think, I don't think the process background is nearly as important today. I mean, it, you're right, it got me where I am. And I think, you know, the personal interaction, the leadership, looking at that, um, those things are more important right at this point in my career and at this point in where I am but you have to know enough to call BS on the process or BS on things that are going on in a plant and so with my background in process you know I, I can I can tell when I'm getting the right story out of people because I can challenge them on it and it's not just on the technical details but it's kind of through the thought process as well so like, for example, my area of expertise is not mechanical, right? So I don't have this strong maintenance background, but I have enough to call BS and, and to challenge when you need to challenge. And I think that, that coming up through the technical background gave me that confidence to be able to look at the inner workings of things, even if it was the technical process point, but that's changed my mindset. So now instead of applying that thought process to equipment, I can apply that process thought process to people and how those interactions work within a plant. I mean, I know it sounds really silly, but, but that's kind of how I see it sometimes because you've got to feed people, you've got to grow them, you know, getting the relationships to work. And then at the end of the day, you know, all the reporting stuff that comes with it and, you know, the HR piece and the accounting piece and, and all that sort of stuff. It's, um, it's just different ways of, of trying to make a smooth process and to create that steady state with, with that many moving parts and people. You know, and that's probably an engineer's viewpoint on management. <laughs> As yeah. opposed to you know, somebody with a business background in, yeah. in coming up through management. Yeah, but I think it also gives, gives a lot of basic due, you know, to the fact that this is still a process facility, right? I could see if you moved up into, you know, like if you were a GM of multiple um, plants or even if you get up into the C-suite so that you've created levels between where you are and the actual process itself, um, you know, the process requirement may still start to drop off. I, I, it's always nice oh, yeah. to know what's going on as far as what do we make, what do we do, so you can ask those basic questions within the meeting. Um, I was just trying to gauge kind of like how much of that would really drop off because, you know, in the back of my mind, I'm like, could you ever grab somebody from an IT, you know, world and uh -huh. bring them in to be a plant manager? You know, so let's say they ran a large IT group, lots of teams, you know, same number of people, et cetera, et cetera, you know, as far as team build out. You know, could you pick that person up and put them into a cement plant or vice versa? Could you take a plant manager in a cement plant and put them right into IT? And I think initially they might be fine because initially you're trying to figure out who the people are. I just don't know uh -huh. if long term, if in either of those situations, you could pick up the basics fast enough to do what you talked about. Right. And that was to call basically to call bull when, you know, right. something's not going right. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I'm not, it's not something I've ever done because most of my career I've been in 
in places and companies and that are familiar enough to me that I can jump in. And I've seen examples, both good and bad, of people coming from outside industry coming in. I think it depends more on the person because I think if somebody is a good team builder, um, you can take them from place to place, right? I think mm-hmm. they can be successful, but you've got to start off with a, a good baseline of motivation and, you know, emotional intelligence, that sort of thing, to bring your team together. Um, and that's important the higher up you go, right? Because it's more right. about that and less about the technical processes. So at the level I'm at right now, I think it's really important. But going up to the next one and even the one after that, absolutely, it's going to start dropping off the importance of the background. And it's more about consensus. and Well, not necessarily consensus, but more about team building and interrelationships and, and truly challenging people. Yeah, that makes sense. You're, you're really trying to figure out the ultimate piece of uh, equipment you have on the plant or in the company, and that's the person. You know, and how do you yeah. get the most out of your, your human capital that you're deploying yeah. and where it's being deployed? Mm-hmm. Yeah, just something I was thinking just as we were talking about this kind of out loud. I mean, you hear about those white knights that get hired in to, you know, help turn around a, a company and you look at their background and you're like, this guy has, knows nothing about this industry. You know, why does that make mm-hmm. sense? And I think it's directly to your point. I mean, if they're good at building teams and you're far enough away from the way the sausage is actually made, eh, maybe they can be successful. Sure, because then you don't buy into the philosophy of, well, we've always made it this way, and that's the only way to do it. Yeah, you know, that's very true. Yep. And you're ignorant of the process, it's easier to challenge it. Yeah, there was, I don't remember who it was, uh, conversation, I probably listened to it on a podcast where the guy said, it's like, get five years of experience in an industry, and if you want to look like a genius, go to a different, or go to an industry that's different enough, but not like yours. And then share your perspective with people and they'll think you're a genius because you've got enough experience, but you know, the way you view it is so different from the way everybody else does. You can break, or at least you can start banging on that wall of, well, this is the way we've always done it mentality. Right. Yeah. That's one of the toughest things is, well, we've always done it this way and blah, blah, blah. Oh, that's, that's a challenge wherever you go. Yeah. 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 It doesn't matter the industry or what it is. If it's been around for more than a few days, you'll you'll end up running against it for sure. Oh yeah. Yeah. So I want to be respectful of your time because I know we're we've been talking for almost an hour, but um I didn't know I wanted to, to ask, I mean most recently you've been um recognized for STEM and uh I believe it was women in manufacturing, correct? Right. It is, yeah. The uh the step ahead award. Um I'm I'm so honored to have been, you know, just just to be a part of something like this. Um, and for me, I kind of look at it, I know this sounds silly, it's a Lifetime Achievement Award, right? Um, I've spent my whole life in this manufacturing, um, you know, with the background of engineering and then combining my passion for that with the mentoring that I've done in various stages of my life, you know, volunteering in the community uh, with people, you know, such as yourself or just trying to to help um, my fellow women out in the plant, right? And to keep on board because you can you can go you can go anywhere you want to go, right? There's not a lot of limits if if you if you really want to do something. Some some aspects are harder than others, but uh, you know, 
building your uh, building your team and being able to do this just makes me so happy. And to be, I'm looking forward to um, to meeting with some of the, my uh, my counterparts in receiving this award. Such strong women, and um, you know, I'm happy to be a part of it. I'm happy that that I was recognized for this. It truly means a lot to me. Yeah, I was. It was one of those when I saw the post come through. Uh, I was definitely excited for you, but I mean, not to not to play it down a little bit, but I wasn't surprised. I was like, well, yeah, of course. I mean, you know, it's just. I mean, having known you for so long, I was like, yeah, this is right up her alley. I mean, there's no <laughs> other person I could think of that you know should have gotten it. So congratulations. Uh, that's being awarded what in about a month or two out in Washington yeah. D.C. It is. Yeah, in April in D.C. Oh, Fantastic. Well, that should be very, very fun, especially to uh, to head out there and, like you said, meet up with all of the others that are recipients of the uh, different awards within that same same realm. That will definitely be quite eye opening, I'm sure. Oh, I'm I'm looking forward to it. So, very much. So, one of the things that I've been asking people um, just at the end, and and uh, I probably could have we could have talked about this before we started recording, but. Um, is there any way that uh, if people hear this, they want to reach out to you? I mean, are you active in any of those interweb social media areas, uh, things of that nature? Anything you want to share as far as, you know, if somebody wanted to reach out and talk to you more about anything we've we've kind of gone over and thrown around today? Yeah, I'm happy to. I'm, I can be reached at LinkedIn. Um, you know, I've, I've got a, a profile on there and I'm happy to help anybody that, that wants to talk about things and you know, I think it's uh, I think it's part of giving back and helping other people, and so I'm always open to that. Absolutely. Cool. Yeah, and I'll make sure the the link to your profile is in the show notes when we get this published, so it'll be pretty easy for uh, people to reach out to you, connect, and and go from there. Yeah. So. Yeah. That'd be great. I'm happy. Absolutely appreciate your time. Thanks. Um, you know, it was fun. Definitely rehashing some of your background. I've learned a couple of things from uh, from you and and. Yeah, I mean, on a personal level, thank you. I mean, not only with this, but it's been it's been fun always crossing paths with you, and I definitely look forward to keep uh, keep doing it in those rock dust industries that we call home, right? <laughs> Absolutely, and I'm I'm thankful that you asked me. This has been fun for me as well, and uh, you know, I wish you luck on on this new venture. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. So, well, with that being said, I appreciate your time, and we'll be in touch. All righty. Thanks again. Okay, bye. Was I joking? Of course I wasn't. That was a fantastic episode. I hope you guys enjoyed that a whole lot. Definitely connect with Laura. She's a fantastic mentor. And if you can get some opportunity to spend some time with her, totally worth it. I, I don't have much to say than that. So again, thanks for coming and stopping by the Growth Happens Dawn to Dusk podcast. If you liked it again, definitely share, comment, leave a five-star review. All of it really helps. And check me out on the social medias. You can see me on the Instagrams, on the Twitters, handles Devit Matt. You can also check me out on LinkedIn, which is where I do a lot of posting and some of the articles that I'm going to be putting out later. And uh, that's just Matt, last name Devit, D-E-V-I-T-T. Anyways, you guys have a great day, and just remember, growth happens between dawn and dusk. Mm-hmm.